1: Good
2: morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where we will explore the religiously curious and spiritually independent. My first guest is Rabbi Rami Shapiro. He is the author of Judaism Without Tribalism, A Guide to Being a Blessing to All the Peoples of the Earth. Rabbi Rami has a reputation for being perhaps the most unorthodox rabbi you've ever met. Growing up, his mother thought that he might be the Messiah, while his father was convinced he was a Luftmensch. And for those of you who don't know, that Yiddish term means airhead. (laughs) Rabbi Rami earned his rabbinical ordination from Hebrew Union College in order to preach his ideas in synagogues, a PhD in Contemporary Judaism from Union Graduate School in order to teach his ideas in universities. Along the way, he's taken bodhisattva vows in Zen Buddhism, become a 32nd degree Mason in the Scottish Rite, been initiated into the Ramakrishna order of Vedanta Hinduism, joined Theosophical Society, published three dozen books, and his poems included... In prayer books and hymnals around the English speaking world. And Rabbi Rami is in the house to talk about religious curiosity and spiritual independence. Thanks for joining me.
3: Oh, thanks for having me, Lisa. This is great. This is good fun for me. So I should I should correct one thing in the bio. Yes. I am I am now a 33rd degree Mason.
2: Oh, snap. That's yeah, impressive.
3: That's, <laughs> that's as high as you can go. So. Are
2: you so you're at the top of the heap?
3: I think there's always a higher a higher point in the heap, but I'm I'm up near the top.
2: That's pretty cool. We could do an entire other show on the mysteries of the Scottish rite. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, congratulations on that. Thank you. Let's talk about religion and spirituality and why for some people this is a sticky subject, but religion at its best is designed to produce a sense of happiness and joy and cohesion and connection.
3: Well, I certainly agree about the connection part. I think happiness and joy are byproducts of religion, but I think you know religion comes from The Latin "religare" to bring together, and I think that religion, at its best—the way you said it—religion at its best is designed to awaken people to the fact that we are all interconnected within the singular or non-dual reality that I would call God. That G word,
2: you know? Yeah, the G word. (laughs) The G word, because I think that's what gets people hung up, you know, oh, God, God, you know, God this, God that, or God is at the root of all the greatest conflicts on the earth. Yeah. When, in fact, if you look at religion and spirituality in its purest, most beautiful form, the, the, what you call it is not necessarily relevant, the name.
3: Yeah, you know, in the Hindu tradition, in the, the Rig Veda, which is in one of the earliest sacred text of of any religious tradition. The Rig Veda says, truth is one, people call it by different names. Mm. And that's, I think that's the ideal or the spiritual ideal. I think that spirituality is, should be understood as a series of practices that bring you to the realization that truth is one and people call it by different names. Religion tends to get hung up on the different names And then reifies a name and says, no, this is the only name. If you don't say this name, it doesn't count. I remember it was years ago, but I don't think the policy necessarily has changed when the leader of the Southern Baptist Convention came out and said that God does not hear the prayer of Jews. And he could have said Hindus. He could have said, you know, Zoroastrians. And, And the reason was that God only hears prayer that has uh, appended at the end, in Jesus' name we pray. If you don't say Jesus, then God doesn't hear you. It's like the connection isn't made. And I'm not going to argue whether he's right or he's wrong. <laughs> he's wrong, <laughs> but I won't argue. <laughs> uh, is
2: there an argument about that? I don't think so.
3: Well, but- I mean, there is um, among his, you know, his flock. But but the idea is, I mean, it's quintessential religious imperialism. That, you know, I mean, every religion has it. The Jews say they're the chosen people. Well, yeah. mm.
2: you're not
3: you know, they'll, you know, Jews will make an effort to try to, you know, talk that back a little bit and say, oh, everyone's chosen. But no, that's not what it means. It means that God chose the Jews from among all the peoples of the earth to be his, you know, and then you put that in parentheses because that's nonsense language. But God chose the Jews to be his. Uh, special people to receive his one and only revelation, the Torah, and the deed to the Holy Land in perpetuity, regardless of who's living there. So, you know, it's it's imperialist. But who wrote that? Mortals. Well, well, that's what I would say. And I (laughs) guess that's what you would say. And it was people writing a book to, you know, promote their own agenda.
2: No. Their but own politics, right? The politics exactly, of, exactly, of, of, of politics. the church but or the, the
3: believers temple. believers won't say that, you know. I mean the Orthodox Jews will say, No, God wrote that. Mm. I mean, if if I'm gonna say that people wrote that, then it's it, it's narcissistic, it's tribalist, you know, it's why I wrote my book, Judaism Without Tribalism. It was trying to get away from that stuff. But every religion has it, and the believers of any given religion don 't think it's man made or, or you know human made it's God it's revelation from God I mean that's the problem with religion it gets it gets all caught up in these imperialist uh, notions and then ends up being a source of incredible conflict rather than unification
2: and when we look at the essence of what I would say most people strive to be, which is that good person, right, to express love and concern and care for one another without the tribalism. I'm saying that if, if the absence of tribalism, that if we talk about that sort of pure agape kind of love, we need to also have critical thinking about what we're choosing to believe in these ancient texts and in these stories
3: right and I, and I think people, especially in a religious setting, are not encouraged to think critically yeah I mean it, you're there to accept whatever's you know thrown at you, and what's interesting is you can talk to people who are just what you said i mean kind compassionate they'll Give you the shirt off their back, kind of, you know, for a trite saying that, you know, they're that kind of person. And yet they'll go into church or a synagogue or somewhere, but I'm thinking of people right here where I live, and they'll go to church and they'll hear doctrines and sing hymns and seem to affirm teachings that are antithetical to the way they actually live. They live as loving people, but they they walk into that chamber and suddenly they have enemies, and 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 suddenly there's satanic elements in their society that have to be rooted out. And but then they forget about that and they go back to being <laughs> their normal selves and they're much nicer. Church in that, you know, in this example is is a detriment to humanity. Doesn't have to be, but in the people that I'm thinking of in my neighborhood. Church does not make them better people. It makes them fearful and angry.
2: Yes. Let's talk a little bit about fear and anger and what drives the the tribal agenda of all faiths. Yeah. It's not just Christianity and Judaism. I mean,
3: no, I mean, any faith that ends up with or striving for political power is now in trouble of losing its soul. And you can see that in Judaism in uh, Israel you can see that in uh, Christian countries like um I mean, you can see it in in Russia the, yeah the war in Ukraine is completely backed by the Russian Orthodox Church you can see it in um, Myanmar with Buddhism you can see it in in the Hindu nationalism of um uh, Prime Minister Modi's India. I mean, it's everywhere. There's, yeah. there's anywhere where religion and politics mix. You've got a problem.
2: And Afghanistan, where it's about being sure. mu- Muslim enough.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and then you see something else. And, and this is not unique to Islam either. But at the moment, you can look at the Taliban in Afghanistan. And you can see that the first thing religions try to do when they're in power is control their women. Yes. That's it. I mean, it it doesn't matter how they do it, you know, because there's different ways of doing it, but they're controlling their women. They start with their bodies. So you can look at the imposition of the burqa. The burqa is not required in Islam. You Mm -hmm. know, the head-to-toe covering. Mm -hmm. It's not required in Islam. Uh, Yet the Taliban are requiring it. So you've erased women's bodies, and then you erase their minds by not allowing uh women to, to go to school. So but it's not unique to Islam. This is yeah.
2: well it's within Judaism as well. I mean in a in certain sense of keeping in the ultra orthodoxy the women sort of pregnant and at home, having as many babies as, as as possible.
3: Yeah, I mean there are exceptions certainly and in modern orthodoxy you don't see that. I mean right. you're gonna have on your show today. Uh, Amy Jill Levine. And she is an Orthodox woman who's one of the great scholars of religion scholars of our time. She's incredible. Yeah, she's absolutely amazing. And so, you know, Orthodoxy hasn't been anathema to her development and growth. But we're not talking about modern Orthodoxy. We're talking about these extreme fundamentalist communities. And again, they go after the women first.
2: Well, and I think that uh, our listeners might want to pay attention because it's happening within the United States. You know, no, you know, <laughs> I mean, we. <we've, laughs> I just want to just just put the Klieg light on that for a moment because it is what's happening here, and we don't. Well, this is not a show about certainly about abortion rights or reproductive rights, but when government gets involved in our knickers, <laughs> it's, you know, it, it upsets me.
3: Yeah, and it should.
2: Yeah, as it uh, should.
3: But it's not just government. It's it's a, in our country. It's a government that is more and more aligned with a certain kind of Christianity. It certainly isn't all Christians, yep. uh, but it is a certain kind of Christian. And it's very dangerous.
2: Let me take us to the break, and when we come back, we'll get to that other point. To learn more about Rabbi Rami Shapiro, please visit rabbirami.com on Twitter at Rabbi Rami and on Instagram rabbi rami let's take that break we'll be right back
0: to learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops corporate programming and speaking engagement services
2: We're back, continuing the conversation with Rabbi Rami Shapiro. We're talking about the religiously curious and spiritually independent. Let's get back to it. Rabbi Rami, let's talk about the importance of critical thinking and personal exploration of our very intimate relationship to or with the divine or whatever we want to call it.
3: Yeah. I mean, critical thinking means just questioning what you're given. But I think you have to have something against which to challenge the ideas that, that you hear in a church or synagogue or mosque or, or temple. And what, what I have in mind is an understanding of God. I mean, I, I am one who uses the G word. <laughs> I use it. I have to be very careful how I use it so that I'm not mistaken for believing in something I don't. So let me just define it. I I think that um, the universe that all creation is a manifesting of a single non-dual reality that you can call Brahma, you can call, um, you know, God, you can call it nature, you can call it Dharmakaya. I mean, there's Allah, there's the mother, there's no end to the names that people have. For Divine, this.
2: divinity, source. Right,
3: exactly. All those names yeah. are useful. And when I use them, What I have in mind is not a being out there somewhere separate from you and I, certainly not a being who judges us or who punishes us or rewards us, but rather existence itself. You know, the Hebrew name for God, and there are many, but the one that uh, is revealed, one of the ones that's revealed to Moses in the story of the burning bush is the unpronounceable yud heh vav or Y-H-V-H. And in most Bibles, they translate it as Lord, which is a rabbinic convention, centuries older than, you know, coming centuries after the Bible itself. Because you can, you literally cannot pronounce the name of God, it's four consonants. Because you can't pronounce it, the rabbis needed something else, as a stand-in, so when you're reading it, what do you say? And they came up with Adonai, which is Lord. But that's a total misdirection of the actual Hebrew word. yod vavhe is not a noun or a pronoun. It's a verb, and it comes from the verb to be, and it really means, be. you know, it's hard to, to say it in English, but being, not a being or a supreme being, but being itself. God, you know, someone said, you know, does God exist? And I'd say, no, God is existence. Yes. That God is everything that you and I experience, including you and I. So uh, what spirituality is all about, not religion, but what spirituality is all about is the realization that you are an expression of God the way a wave is an expression of an ocean. That's, that's the key thing. Any text that you read, any hymn that you sing, any idea that you're taught I would say, needs to be critically examined from the viewpoint of non-duality. Does this reveal that you and I are part of this infinite happening of the divine, or does it separate us? And if it separates us, it's false. If it brings us together, if it honors our uniqueness while at the same time honoring our interdependence, then I think it's true,
1: and I, <laughs> regardless
3: of where it comes
2: from. I'm drinking the Manischewitz. I, I'm with you. <laughs> you know, I, I get it. I I get it. And when I'm in, in that state of that which you describe, it is a religious experience. It's a peak experience. Yeah. Of full connection and aliveness.
3: Absolutely. and And, and it translates into a universal ethic of, You know, I prefer the Hillel's earlier or Confucius even before Hillel, but the earliest expression of the Golden Rule, which is what is hateful to you, don't do to somebody else. Yeah, I think that one's less problematic than Jesus's positive affirmation of "Do unto others as you would have them do unto you." I like "Don't do to others what you wouldn't (laughs) want them to do to you." I think that's safer. But in either case, when you realize that. The other is you, that you are the other, that we're all part of the singular body of the divine reality, then the, the only ethic that matters is the golden rule. I mean, how you apply it can get confusing. How, how do I deal with it in a, a given situation? But when someone says, oh, you have got to go and impose X on this group of people, or wipe out this group of people, you know that whoever's saying this or teaching this is not in touch with truth.
2: Yeah, they're teaching separation and disconnection, yeah. which is right. the antithesis of what that full bodied religious experience is meant to elicit within us. Right. Let's talk about the way we walk in the world, or in in, a, in an ideal, perfect world for us as individuals, the way in which we approach life, approach one another, approach our relationship to the numinous.
3: Yeah, let's not talk about the ideal, perfect world because that doesn't exist. Okay, and,
2: I'm I'm okay with that too. <laughs> let, let's talk
3: about let's talk about this messy fear-filled, anger-riven, uh, as well as loving world that I encounter every day, I'm with this, you. Is where, this is where it matters. The way you walk, and it's just what we were saying a moment ago, the way you walk is with the golden rule in your, as your compass. Religions give us a map, you know, go X you know, miles in one direction, turn right, go this way, and they have a specific destination in mind. The golden rule is a compass, it's not it's not a place you're going to end up it just tells you am i moving in the right direction the direction of compassion the direction of love the direction of justice and and the golden rule is good for that and that's the way we ought to walk and work in the world we don't because we are fed so much i mean disinformation i don't mean this just from the cable news and just from political uh, people, from religious people, from, you know, all over the spectrum, so much disinformation that divides and frightens and turns us against one another. That has to be challenged because it's false. You can challenge it intellectually. That's the kind of critical thinking we were talking about. But I think a deeper challenge is the challenge of spiritual practice that takes you out of the us versus them modality and awakens us to you know, us and them, or we're all in this together kind of thing. There's just, you know, there's just one human race. And if you look at the larger picture, there's just one divine reality. And sometimes it's happening as trees, sometimes as cows, sometimes as people. It happens as everything. And when you see the divine happening, I mean, this is my own prejudice, but when you see the divine happening as cows, You don't eat them. I mean, it's not like it's not like Eucharist. (laughs) Well, I'm going to take God into my body by having a a Big Mac. Uh, There's a certain way of acting that arises from this way of knowing when I know we're all part of the same reality. I can only interact with with love. And that's the challenge. Now, I personally can't do that all the time, but that's. That's the compass. You can yeah. look at the golden rule compass and say, oh, I'm off. I'm not, I'm off my path. I'm not treating that person uh, the way I would want to be treated. So that's where spirituality is, is so important. And if religion could open itself to that kind of spirituality, religion could be healed. I don't have a lot of hope for religion.
2: I agree. I, I, I think the, the notion of leading with love and, Destroying this concept of the otherness of the other is so massive that I think it would be too hard to do because you've got kingdoms, you know, yeah. virtual kingdoms built on that premise and it deconstructs everything that much of humanity thought about religion.
3: And I know we're coming up on the end, but I guess there is a way out. And the way out isn't this or that religion, the, the way out is engaging in. One or more, but I wouldn't make it too many, but, you know, one or two spiritual practices that lift you out of the us versus them modality and awakens you to we're all in this together. And when I say all, I'm talking about humans and animals and nature as a whole. And the practices aren't difficult. Chanting alone, uh, I think, is a powerful and maybe the most powerful practice uh, for our time, chanting a name of God, whether it's Jesus or Allah or, you know, any of the ones in, in Judaism or in Buddhism, uh, or, or Islam, chanting the, you know, the, the 99 names of God in Islam, chanting itself, regardless of the content, chanting itself is a way of shifting from the narrow dualistic mind to the spacious non-dual mind. These are not, it's not rocket science.
2: No. No, and then when you chant in the company of others, Uh look out. (laughs) That's been my experience.
3: I agree, mine
2: too. Yeah, it's um, that is another worldly kind of moment when we uh, are we uplift with with our voices, which is uh, which is your message, right?
3: You're right. You're not going to walk into your church, synagogue, mosque, or temple and change the place, but you can walk into your room and chant and change yourself.
2: And when you change yourself, you change your world.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: Rabbi, come hang out again. I would love to. (laughs) This is so great. The book we're talking about is Judaism Without Tribalism, a guide to being a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. To learn more about my fabulous guest, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, please go to RabbiRami.com. On Twitter, you could find him at Rabbi Rami. And guess what? On Instagram, also Rabbi Rami. Thank you.
3: My pleasure.
2: Let's take that quick break and we'll be right back to continue the conversation.
0: Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Happy day.
2: Welcome back. We're talking about the religiously curious and spiritually independent. My next guests are Professor Amy Jill Levine and Professor Mark Zvi Rattler. Amy Jill Levine, also known as AJ, is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies and Mary Jane Worthen Professor of Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt Divinity and ANS. She is also affiliated Professor of the Wolf Institute Center for Jewish Christian Relations at Cambridge. Her co-author, Mark Zvi Brettler, is the Bernice and Morton Lerner Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies in the Department of Religious Studies at Duke University. He is actively involved in many aspects of Jewish communal life, and I have the great fortune of having them in the house to have what I think is an important conversation, especially now. Guys, in the climate that we find ourselves in, how can we use the Bible as a story to teach us to return to civility?
1: It's been my experience, and I live in Tennessee, that the Bible is usually weaponized. There's an old saying that the Bible should be a rock on which you stand rather than a rock thrown to do damage. And what we're hoping to do in this book is show that there actually is not just one Bible. There are multiple Bibles because the scriptures of the church are not the scriptures entirely of the synagogue. Church has a part two. And when we read the text, some of my students will say to me, oh, clearly the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. You can find him on every page. But if I go to my synagogue, the people in my synagogue, no, you can't see him at all. And then we have disagreement and disagreement can sometimes lead to to lack of civility. So what Mark and I have tried to do in this book is explain what these texts meant in their original context, how the New Testament interprets them, and then how the Jewish tradition interprets them as well. So we can respect the readings of our neighbors and see where they get those readings. And then ideally we can respectfully disagree.
4: Lisa, I really love your first question. I think civility is really important now. I think we're really stressed out now more than ever between COVID and the election, and we cannot forget civility. And I think the Bible is the best example of civility because the Bible, no matter which Bible we're talking about, whether it's the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, whether it's the New Testament or the Bible as a whole, never has a single position on anything. You wanna ask a simple question, you know, who was created first, the animals or people? Well, it depends whether you're reading Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. You look at the different Gospels. The life of Jesus is fundamentally different in the different Gospels. Yet, nevertheless, they're all there together on the same page, not yelling at each other. And I think it's a wonderful example for us on how you could have different, fundamentally different positions in the same book, and they could sit side by side in a civil manner. Isn't that
2: the point of the document, though, that really it is a to prompt discussion, to, to prompt exploration?
1: I think it depends upon the person you ask. I mean, for me as a Jew, it is exactly right. I read the text and it raises for me the questions that I think need to be asked it does not always give me the same answer, and sometimes it doesn't give me an answer at all. It basically sends me back to say, go think about this a little bit more individually and in community. But for other people, the Bible has a completely singular message. It is that uh, the Old Testament, and here I'm using the Christian term, points to Jesus as Lord, and the New Testament proves it. Uh, So there's nothing else to do other than get that confessional aspect out of the text. The problem is that individual Christians will disagree on doctrine. They will disagree on what text is most important. So even asking to what does the Bible point, the answer may depend upon the individual whom you ask. Which brings in culture.
2: I'm sorry, I cut you off, Mark, and I didn't mean to do that.
1: And I would just say, given that,
4: as odd as it sounds, the most important word in our book title is the word and— yeah someone really wanted us to title the book, "The Bible with or Without Jesus. And that would be exactly the opposite of the book that we're writing. It really is about the Bible with and without Jesus, which is really offering different opportunities to different people and to different religious communities
2: and when we talk about what the Bible says versus what we think it says, I would love to get your take on that because you know perception is one's reality, right?
1: <laughs> the glasses that you wear, the lenses through which you look will determine yeah. to a great extent what you what you wind up seeing. Yeah, and it's not only the glasses that
4: you wear, but it's really important to remember that different people are reading fundamentally different bibles in a number of different ways. So obviously the Jewish community is reading a shorter bible than the Christian community is doing. But the differences really go well beyond that. So if the Jewish community is reading its Bible via the Hebrew text, and that text is really sacrosanct in a variety of ways, while for different Christian communities, the Greek text may be more important, or the Latin text, the Vulgate may be more important. So we're reading different Bibles through different lenses, And thus, we're really not even reading the same Bible, though most of these Bibles have an awful lot in common, but we try to explain some of these differences so people will understand why they differ with one another.
1: Right. So, for example, how do Christians wind up seeing a virginal conception and Jews if they even look at Isaiah 714, which is not part of the the Jewish lectionary reading? We don't read that text uh, in the synagogue on Saturday morning. But if they were to look at Isaiah 714, they would they would see a pregnant woman whose pregnancy is no more or less miraculous than anybody else's. Christians will look at Isaiah 53 and see a prediction of Jesus, the suffering servant. And Jews traditionally will look at that text and say, oh, the suffering servant is Israel who was taken into exile and then more or less resurrected when brought back into the homeland. Christians look at Jonah and see often a sign of resurrection, like Jonah comes out of the fish, Jesus comes out of the tomb. Jews see a profound statement about the importance of repenting. So, Again, the lenses you look and the emphases you bring to the text, as well as, as Mark pointed out, translation and canonical order and punctuation, different Bibles. yeah all of these things make a difference. And what's unusual about
4: this book is we are not really interested in making claims about who is right or what is right. We are really interested in people from different communities understanding their religious traditions, and in a respectful way, understanding the religious traditions of the other.
2: What I see, what I glean from this, just I I explained to you, it just came to me, and I haven't had a chance to really dive in, but it dawned on me when I held it in my hands that to think of the Bible as a living document, right? That there is the uh, interpretation or the intention with which it was written, and then the fact that its interpretation changes based upon cultural identity where, where oh, ex- we are.
1: Exactly. That, that's so correct. Um, and even more than that, it changes for the individual reader. So if, if you read a text when you're six or a text is read to you when you're six and you get a particular message out of it, you read the text again when you're 60. If you get exactly the same message, something has gone dreadfully wrong. No, gross. And what has gone wrong <laughs> is not with the text. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, so it, it has it has to be a living document because otherwise, interpretations of any document will change over time as we read Homer or Shakespeare. But this is a document that speaks the word of God to to the communities that hold it sacred. So they have to figure out what the message is for them in their own present moment. And that's a live text. And that type of interpretation
4: involves the community. Most people think reading is very simple. Reading is really incredibly complicated. Many people describe reading, especially of religious texts, in terms of a triangle. You have the text, you have the individual who is reading, and you have the community that that individual is part of. And we're always negotiating different parts of that triangle.
2: You know, I'm, I'm thinking uh, the words that you're that you're saying, and I'm thinking about sort of the cultural identity as as a Jew and what we're taught in terms of reading the Bible or the Talmud and the importance of arguing, but not arguing in an uncivilized way, but arguing in, an, in a curious, inquisitive way.
1: Arguing shows your investment in the text, which is why, for example, we very often in the Gospels see Jesus arguing with fellow Jews about the best way of interpreting the the Torah, the the law that Moses got on Mount Sinai. Um, Jews Jews have always done that. Um, and, And we can do that because at the end of the day, we're still Jews. We are a people. Or if you want to use the term ethnic group, which is problematic, but we're basically like Americans. We're in the system so we can argue. My Christian students, for the most part, don't like arguing. They want the one correct answer. That's interesting. So I, have, you know, and I try to say them. Look, you know, you're in a system too. You are all baptized. You're all part of the same body. In effect, I quote Paul here in First Corinthians. Go argue with each other because if 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 you want to be a type of Israel or connected with Israel, that suggests wrestling with God. How do you do that? You wrestle with the text and you wrestle with each other, but you do so as members of the family who love each other and who love this text, and that's why it's worth arguing over. And the Hebrew Bible itself has exactly that same model. Uh,
4: when the name Israel is given an etymology in the book of Genesis, it's talking about striving or wrestling with God and succeeding. That type of wrestling is good. Or take a look at the book of Job. I mean, it's, you could, some people say it re, it's a dialogue, but it's really an argument. And nobody knows what the answer to that <laughs> argument is. <laughs>
2: But, but this, this wrestling with the word versus sort of the, the blind faith aspect. I think that if we can each have a better understanding, like you're talking about your, your Christian students, AJ, you know, wanting to, to basically have the gospel, the word and know which way to go. Like it's a rule book and the Jewish student knowing that the argument is part of the story and part of the relationship to God, him or her itself.
1: Absolutely. so it, it helps for them to realize, and not all of them do, uh, that Jesus is a Jew talking to fellow Jews and that Jews have always been arguing about these texts. that Paul is a Jew and he's drawing on his Jewish background um, in order to argue with his his pagan converts. So if we look at the New Testament as substantially a Jewish book, then it makes a whole lot more sense. and we can even see in the New Testament. But texts don't agree with each other. Some suggesting that Jesus is coming back very, very soon, and some suggesting he's coming back in a very, very long time. Some suggesting uh, you can eat pagan food because you know that it's not really dedicated to a God because there aren't any gods. And others saying absolutely not. no way can you do that. Some saying no laws at all, and some saying, well, there are a couple we might want to follow. Uh, and we have four gospels which already tells us that we've got four different portraits of Jesus. in a sense, those are arguments. Which one are you going to go with on which day and why?
2: We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with the two good professors in the house, Professor A.J. Levine and Professor Mark Zvi Brettler. We're talking about their book, The Bible with and without Jesus, how Jews and Christians read the same stories differently to learn more please go to divinity.vanderbilt.edu and you can check out Amy Jill Levine's profile there. Mark's, his website contact, which is uh, jewishstudies.duke.edu and you can search for his name, Mark Zvi Brettler. Here comes a quick pause. We'll be right back.
0: (laughs) Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
2: Continuing the exploration of religiously curious and spiritually independent with my guests, Professor Amy Jill Levine and Professor Marx V. Brettler. Prior to the break, we were talking about the many stories within the Bible, the many interpretations within the Bible. I wanted to now turn the conversation from omissions in the various versions of the Bible, because I didn't know that, that there's some editorializing going on between the different versions.
4: So the important thing to realize about both the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament and the New Testament is that they're collections. Many people, when they read the Bible, think, oh, the Old Testament, that is everything about ancient Israel. Or when they read the New Testament, oh, yeah, that is everything about the early Christ believing group living in the lands of Israel. That's very, very far from the case. Both of these books are selections, are collections which are selections. I'll let AJ talk about the New Testament part, but one of the things that's very clear is that the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament itself mentions 20 odd books which have been lost. It more or less quotes those books. So that makes us realize that the Bible is not at all broadly reflective of ancient Israel, but reflects a very small group of ancient Israel. There was a lot more ancient Israelite or very early Jewish literature floating around. Some of it has been lost. Perhaps some of it has been preserved in pieces like the Dead Sea Scroll. And thus, there's a whole lot that existed in ancient Israel that has been omitted in the Bible, which is a, a very small collection, very small slice of that ancient literature.
1: When we turn to the Christian material, um, different Christian groups, different Christian movements have different collections in their Bible. So if we're just looking at the Protestant church, we're going to jump from Malachi at the end of the prophets immediately into Matthew. And then we have basically the Protestant Old Testament looks pretty much in terms of the number of books and and the books themselves, like the the Jewish Tanakh. Mm -hmm. However, Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Anglican (laughs) Communions. They've got a lot of books uh, in their canon that the Protestants don't have and that the Jews don't have. So these are books written by Jews, but before the time of Jesus, most of them in Greek, although from the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have a few Hebrew and Aramaic copies, books like Susanna, which may be one of the world's first detective stories, or Judith, First and Second Maccabees, uh, The Wisdom of Jesus Ben Sirach, and so on. And these are sometimes called Old Testament apocrypha or deuterocanonical literature. And when we get to the early Christian documents, there are other Christian documents that were in some early official collections and eventually dropped out, like the Shepherd of Hermas or a text called First Clement. There's actually a third Corinthians to go with first and second in the canon. There's a lovely text called the Didache, which is really quite early. So just as The Jews, when they got their canon together, and that was an extremely long process that was still going on at the time of Jesus as they were organizing their canon and figuring out what to include and what not to include. The same thing was happening with the Christian church. And the odd thing is that we still have it today because in some churches you'll hear the book of Revelation a lot And in other churches, you won't hear it at all. The Jewish readings that we have in the synagogue on Saturday morning, we will emphasize certain texts that Christians may never hear at all. And Christians will read certain texts that are quoted in the Gospels that Jews don't hear because they're not part of our liturgy. So not only did they leave out books or omit books or choose different books, we also choose which books to emphasize and which passages to stress So what A.J. is talking about is often called
4: a canon within a canon. Yeah, there might be a Bible that you have, but not everybody reads the whole Bible. Not every community considers every word of that Bible to be of equal importance. So an image I like to use is that different religious communities take different books or different verses or different words and puts them in, let's say, 48-font-type, huge, and puts others in three-point type. So again, coming back to some of what we're talking about in the Bible with and without Jesus, yeah, the Jewish and Christian community have more or less the same Hebrew Bible Old Testament, but they consider different works and different books to be more important, putting some in huge fonts, and others more or less disappear because they're not read or not important within that community. Effectively, being in three point fonts that even if you squint, you could barely read them.
2: <laughs> what about the stereotypes of women in the Bible, both with and without Jesus? And you mentioned the difference between the interpretation of Mary,
1: for example. Um, it, right. So the problem—the problem is not the biblical stereotypes. The problem is our stereotypes. So, exactly. Right. So you well, know, thanks for we, correcting me. See, right there, so the general <laughs> thing is like whoever this we is like we American culture, particularly those who are not familiar with the Bible, think that women are chattel and they have no role and they either have to be virgins or mothers and, and that's it. And they can't have any public presence. And it's it's downhill from Eve. <laughs> but if, if, if God, you look at the text, right, and it's not, it's, I mean, the women have incredibly diverse roles, just like men have incredibly diverse roles, um, and they are not oppressed and suppressed and depressed and repressed. Um, it, they're, they own businesses, they're out in public, they worship in synagogues, they worship in the Jerusalem temple, they serve as judges, they serve as political rulers like queens. Um, some of them are sneaky and really smart and some of them are just absolutely lovely. Um, and most of them are really quite complex. So with any stereotype that we might have when we start reading the Bible carefully, and as Mark pointed out, it's really an anthology, a collection of books. The image of women in one book may be very different than the image of women in another, and the image of women even in the same book will change if you go from Eve to Sarah to Hagar to Rebecca to Rachel and Leah and so on. And they're all different. So what the Bible Um, does is actually break the stereotype rather than reinforce it. And let me start with that first woman, with
4: Eve. So AJ, you said it's all down. Or that first question, woman, <laughs> it's all it's all downhill from Eve. But I think even one of the questions that needs to be asked, and something that we do deal with, is whether or not Eve is part of the downhill. And this is a huge difference between lots of Christian and lots of Jewish interpretation, because the Christian interpretation of the Garden story in Genesis chapters two and really focuses on issues such as original sin and Eve is blamed. You have that tradition in parts of Judaism. So, for example, in one of the Apocryphal books, in the Wisdom of Ben Sirah, but if you look at the biblical text itself, oh, it's not at all so clear that Eve is to be blamed in that particular account. And something that will probably surprise a lot of your readers is, a lot of your listeners, excuse me, is that often we hear of the curse of Eve. But go back to Genesis chapter three. You'll see that the word curse is used in relation to Adam. You'll see that the word curse is used in relation to the serpents. But we read those verses about Eve. The word curse is totally absent there. So maybe the downhill in the Hebrew Bible itself does not, if there is such a downhill, does not start with Eve, but starts with certain different interpretations of Eve in both Christian and Jewish tradition.
1: Right. So we might think of Christianity as talking about original sin and a fall. The Jewish tradition substantially takes it takes the whole Eden thing as an original opportunity rather than than an original downhill. And we can read Eve as uh, as Mark pointed out as the problem. And that would be in the New Testament in First Timothy. Um, It's it's it wasn't the man that was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. But you don't have to read it that way. So when we start reading through each other's eyes, we begin to see how some of those stereotypes develop. And at the same time, we can see the counters to those stereotypes.
2: What I love about this conversation and what I love about the book is the idea that we can learn from each other, that we can start healing some of the rift by using these stories in the Bible as conversation points to better include and accept one another, because we need it right now. I mean, the the fact is, here we are in 2020 and beyond, and we're having a discourse like this based upon religion is both uh, upsetting and exhilarating, you know, in a certain sense that we can start to have this debate in a healthy way. And I, I my guess is that's what your intentions are.
1: That's certainly part mm-hmm. of it. Um, I want to do, Mark, I want to do this one <laughs> um, yeah, sure. so at the end of each chapter. We we try to imagine what these ancient texts would mean to today's readers. And even if we have a text where the New Testament says this was done to fulfill what was said by a prophet. Right. That doesn't mean that you you can take that prophetic passage and just check it off the shelf. It has to have an ongoing meaning. So if you have a sign, and and that's the word that's used in Isaiah, an ot, a sign in Hebrew, and the sign is a pregnant young woman. Well, if you see a pregnant young woman today, what what message are you going to take about care for her child um, or questions of fertility or questions of what she can do with her body? If you have a suffering servant, and today you see someone who is in such an awful condition as this suffering servant, and he's really suffering so you see a suffering person on the sidewalk. What do you do? So the Bible is continuing to raise these questions that are pressing for us today. Don't just check off those images and say, Jesus fulfilled it, so we're done. That text still has to have ongoing meaning.
0: Oh.
2: And what do we do? We help our neighbor. That's what we do.
1: We help our neighbor, and if, if we can, we try to figure out, how our neighbor reads the text in a different way than we do. Um, Mark and I uh, got together uh, in in an academic context, editing the Jewish annotated New Testament, which is now in its second edition. Um, And in doing that, what we tried to do was say, let's gather together a group of Jewish scholars for the second edition over 70 and, and have these scholars Look at Matthew, look at Paul, look at Revelation, look at how Jesus has been understood by Jews over time or Paul or Mary and write a book that shows respect for the tradition and Jewish engagement with that tradition. So if Jews can look at Christian material and say, In 2020, we can do this with respect and with respectful disagreement and notice all the harmful interpretations and say, here are other ways of reading. That's a move towards civility that I think we all need. And what this book is trying to do is erase that. I got it right. So you got it wrong and say, I understand now why you read the way you do. And I might not agree with you, but at least I can have respect for how you got to that conclusion.
2: Very well said. I, I, I want to, uh, we're out of time and I want to give your contact information once again. The book we've been talking about today is The Bible With and Without Jesus, How Jews and Christians Read the Same Stories Differently. The co authors are in the house, Professor AJ Levine and Professor Marks V. Brettler. To learn more about them both, I'm going to give you a couple of websites. For AJ, you could go to vanderbilt.edu and she's in the Divinity School. For Mark, you can go to duke.edu edu in the jewish studies department and find him there thank you both i mean this is just like a little teeny like amuse-bouche to, to to a bigger conversation and i have to say if i were a student in one of your classes i would be like it would be hard for me to leave the room
1: because
2: this is interesting <laughs> stuff <laughs> Seriously, thank
4: you very
1: much <laughs> There's no test, so it's all enjoyable, and you go from the amused bouche to the full feast. Exactly,
2: and the conversation that ensues when you do walk out of that classroom. I mean, it, for me, it gives food for thought and food for the soul, and I thank you for sharing it with me and our listeners. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's
4: been a pleasure.
2: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, Professor Amy Jill Levine and Professor Marx V. Brettler wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another.
0: Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.